0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Southern Farm and Garden, a beautiful handcrafted agricultural journal. Purchase a copy today at southernfarmandgarden.com.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network
3: This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary person in the field of hospitality. I'm constantly on the lookout for people who are trying to help change the world in small ways and in some really, really big ways. Today's guest I met at an event called Dine and Dash. There's no A and D. It's N. It's so fast. They don't even have time for the A and the D in Washington, D.C., Dine and Dash is organized by Chef Jose Andres, and it benefits his nonprofit World Central Kitchen, an incredible organization. If you don't know about it, you have to go Google it. They do amazing humanitarian relief work around the world. This event that I was at in D.C. was to raise money for uh, chefs for Puerto Rico. My guest today, Aaron Schroed, did I pronounce it right? Schroed, I you know as listeners know I always manage to mangle with names is the COO of World Central Kitchen of Chefs for Puerto Rico of Chefs for Puerto Rico sorry Um, after Hurricane Maria Andres tapped to organize the relief organization on the ground. What an incredibly huge job. Erin, welcome to uh, Speaking Broadly. I'm so happy to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, one of the things I thought was amazing is that you jumped into Chefs Pur- for Puerto Rico when you'd never, had you ever been to Puerto Rico? Never. Never. And did you speak Spanish? Very poorly at that time. <laughs> <laughs> had you ever organized a relief kitchen? Not once, no. So you, what did Jose see in you? And he was like, sure, Erin, you must stay. I think he brought you there, right? And then he left you
4: there <laughs> to run the whole
3: thing. What
4: was that like? Well, I knew that he had gone down right after Hurricane Maria and started cooking. And I got a text, actually, from his chief of staff that said, we have great dreams of setting up kitchens all across the island and... Need somebody down here to run it. There's an 8 a.m. flight tomorrow. <laughs> and I said, no. What does it entail? I said, yes. And I got on the plane. Wait, you said no. And and then Danny said, yes. You're actually, that's not your answer. Your answer is actually yes, you're going to come. Your answer is, here is the plane ticket. It's a nonstop flight. <laughs> and we will see you in San Juan tomorrow. What were you doing? I, at that point, was actually celebrating holidays with my family a <laughs> gathering, but I had so many projects on deck that I was really excited about things that I had been working towards. We'd just come out of the summer and I was about to launch a couple of things. And I said, okay, I can go down for four or five days, help sort things, get it underway. And Jose, I later found out, why on earth did he entrust me with this program? And we met after the earthquake in Haiti, which is when he started World Central Kitchen in the beginning of 2010. And he said, well, I knew you were running logistics at a hospital, so I thought that skill set would be exactly what I needed. And lo and behold, I got down there. That afternoon, we were moving into a new kitchen at a Choliseo, this massive arena where we were going to scale up to, as he says, feed an island. And he introduced me to the governor's staff as the COO, said we were going to cook 100,000 meals a day. And I looked at him and said, yes, chef.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, what is going through your mind when you say yes, chef, to something that honestly seems completely impossible?
4: Jose is a visionary. He is a dreamer. He has a mind that can truly see that which does not yet exist. I know, but
3: so he's the dreamer and you're the person on the ground, right? <laughs> so you have
4: to make it exist. Like, well, that was that? My, my task was how do we actually scale up? And he started throwing out names and people and acronyms and towns. Oh and I just God. started scribbling in a notebook, just <laughs> writing it all down and knowing at some point this will make sense and he says it best, we didn't cook meat, we didn't talk, we cooked. And people started showing up. And you cannot scale something that does not exist. And you cannot replicate that which has not been done. So once we had one kitchen, we had the systems in place. Uh-huh. And we started to replicate that around the island. I learned Spanish really quickly because I, <laughs> I wanted to know what my chefs were saying about me. Um, but I also wanted to know how to communicate with people in the mountains and in these rural areas where there was the most need it was basically a logistics challenge the goal is to feed the people in Puerto Rico who need to be fed so you have to backtrack in something of a flowchart first you need the ingredients and and where were the the ingredients were coming from everywhere Yeah, at that point, there were a lot of full warehouses in Puerto Rico. I see. So we tapped into, at the beginning, Jose was paying cash for small vans that could get fuel, that could go on the roads to bring it to us. And then it was about fuel. So we started to get first donations of gas. We were trading gas for food. We were doing whatever we could. And then you have a team. And chefs can turn... Anything or nothing into healthy, hearty, nutritious meals. That's the secret sauce. That's what we had, was this new approach to mass feeding, which was driven by chefs. Some came down from Think Food Group, and others... Which is Jose's um, company in D.C. So you had chefs showing up to cook, but also people wandering up to our door saying, Hi, I cook. Lo and behold, there were some of the best chefs around Puerto Rico. And he launched, too, with... Jose Enrique at a restaurant there, who is an incredibly well renowned chef and well regarded and well connected. Jose Santaya connected us to Jose Santiago. Yes, everyone's name is Jose. Awesome. <laughs> it should be Jose Rico. Maybe. <laughs> and there we went. We st-
3: but your task yeah. was to get things done in a place where there was limited everything,
4: no power. No water, no communications. That was the most challenging thing. Yeah, that all sounds really hard to me. Um, And
3: what in your past had prepared you for that, either like emotionally prepared you or logistically prepared you? Like how does one get ready
4: to do that? There's so many moving pieces. Lists are my best friend. Okay. I love a list. First of all, in a notebook, yeah. you write it all down and you can cross it off. It's like the best. It is wonderful. And when you have no power to charge a laptop <laughs> or to charge a phone, you go back to basics, yeah. notebooks and basic organization. For me, I started a nonprofit 13 years ago. And when we began, we started working with multiple different campuses and you had multiple balls in the air and you had to delegate. And I think one of the skills that enabled us to build all of these kitchens was that I got to, and we as an organization, empower leaders to take on that charge and to build their own team. They knew the systems. They knew what they were expected to do. They saw how we had done it. and Then they took it and made it their own. So that for us to transfer it to churches, to preschools, to elderly homes, and to say, look, you have a massive responsibility here, and that is to feed the people that need to be fed in your municipality. So that skill set was good, but I'll tell you, every morning I started with a list, and when I got home at 2 and 3 in the morning, I went through and we started it all over. In some ways, it felt like Groundhog's Day. Yeah. But when you are in disaster response mode, which I had seen on the ground in Haiti, which I had seen working with refugees in Lesbos, Greece, in Macedonia, in Jordan, you wake up every day. And you have very simple goals. And if you accomplish those, at the end of the day, it might not seem like this massive sense of pride. But you get up and you do it again. And it's truly step by step. So we did. I woke up every morning at 4 in the morning, went to a large black box of El Choliseo, and people were lining up. For meals that we weren't going to start dispatching till eight. Mm -hmm. So what keeps you going in moments like that? You have to be organized, you have to be diligent, you have to stay the course, but you hear one comment from someone about what a hot meal meant to them. You hear about how our food showed up in a town that had yet to receive any aid or any organization and World Central Kitchen came with food they knew, food they loved. That keeps it going. Okay,
3: I gotta say, like this is audio; it's not visual. I'm like weeping inside. It's like, um, it's so moving. Let's go back 13 years, um, because you started. It was called Teen um, Teens Turning Green, and you were so now you're 26. So, if my math is right, you were doing that when you were 13, and you're in eighth grade, and you were outraged by the fact that the beauty industry was creating products that were potentially carcinogenic. Um, I wanna know everything about this. So you're 13, first of all, how much uh, knowledge did you have of cosmetics? Like were you really, and why was that the thing that really struck you and just got you so upset?
4: So I grew up in the Bay Area in Northern California, which is an idyllic, beautiful place. And I grew up, I like to say, in a little green bubble. My mom raised me eating organic food, going to the farmer's market, and drinking out of my reusable bottle. And that was this beautifully warped, yet somehow (laughs) never weird reality. Um, And in 2002, a study came out that Marin County had the highest breast prostate melanoma cancer rates in the world. My mom was watching her friends go through chemotherapy. I was seeing the parents of my friends go through chemotherapy. Yet still, I didn't totally grasp the scale and the severity of this epidemic. And I saw my mom spring into grassroots activist mode to ask a very simple question, why? Why were cancer rates off the charts? To not just always seek to remedy a problem at the end, but to go back to the start to root it out. How can we literally rid this evil from our lives? And two years later, this study came out linking the ingredients in personal care products to cancer. So I thought I did things right. I thought I erred on the side of precaution. I thought I lived a healthy life. But I was in eighth grade, and Britney Spears was the spokesperson for Herbal Essences Shampoo, (laughs) and Maybelline Full and Soft Mascara was in my pencil case. And never once had I thought about the ingredients in those products. And that for me is the beauty and the naivete of youth is that I wasn't afraid to challenge the status quo. If I knew then what I know now, yeah, about taking on a multi-billion-dollar beauty industry, yeah. I never would have done it. Yeah.
3: So that's that's the, that's the charm of youth. I am curious, though, the 13-year-old you. What else were you
4: doing? I mean, it just seems like I was doing theater and I was playing soccer. <laughs> I just want to be sure. I, I was you living were. a very normal life. You were. And this was. What I did after I finished my homework, (laughs) this is what we did around my kitchen table on Sunday mornings. I would bake on Saturdays and we would sit mostly with cool high school girls (laughs) around my table and ideate what sorts of campaigns. How could we make these issues relevant and accessible to our peers? Okay, how do you even have that thought in your head? Like, relevant, accessible... To, and it was also 13
3: years ago. Like, today, I feel like with social media and everybody's exposed mm-hmm. to campaigns and everybody's hashtag this and that, and, like, I kind of get it. This was it. pre-Twitter, pre-Facebook. We had email, but that, <laughs> but that was about <laughs> it. Right? So, like, how do you... And I, I totally understand the motivation. Mm-hmm. And it is motivating to see people get sick and you, you wonder why. And then it's your own
4: town. Like, it's... But... Um, I, I thought about... How many choices we have in our lives. I can't, first of all, I can't put back together melting polar ice caps. I can't take my house off the grid. Could you try? I liked polar bears. Yeah. But that That's was about so it. Yeah. And one of the only things that I was purchasing or I was asking my parents to buy yeah. for me at that time was my shampoo. Yeah. Or my soap or my lip gloss. Yeah. And what do you mean no one's looking out for my health and well-being? What do you mean... There's no oversight. What can I do? Yeah, And that response was universal. That urge to do something. Yeah, But we didn't know what. And that was the first meeting. How do we tell people? Yeah. So we brought so in a Were you an outraged child? I
3: mean, he's a very normal, balanced person, human being. Um, you know, having known you for an hour. Um, but that amount of indignation in a 13-year-old, was it born... Of, like. Was that the culmination of, you know, living this marine life where you did make so many healthy choices and you were so intentional?
4: It was. It was something that didn't fit into the greater landscape of my life at that point. Yeah. And I was so frustrated that somehow I'd had the wool pulled over my eyes. Yeah. And that if I, who had the privilege yeah. to think and to question and to know this and to live this so-called healthy lifestyle in the Bay Area. Yeah. If I was unaware, what about the rest of the people? And I was also concerned with who was making these products, Yeah, who was being exposed in greater dosages than I to these toxic chemicals. So it wasn't just an environmental issue or a public health issue, it was also a social justice issue and we brought in a chemist and we started learning. Because let me tell you, science wasn't my best subject. <laughs> and we started to say, what is in here? And how can people opt for safer, more sustainable alternatives? We created two lists, the Dirty 30, what to avoid commonly used products, and what to opt for. Because people need solutions. Yeah. Doom and gloom is not sexy. It does yeah. not sell. Yeah. And for us, safe sustainable, effective things. If you give somebody something that doesn't meet their need, that doesn't serve their purpose, they're going to toss it. And they're going to be turned off from this whole healthy, eco, organic, call it what you will, lifestyle. Um, so we started with body care. We started with what you put on you. But we quickly realized we couldn't just stop there. So we started to take on fashion, the global impacts of the textile industry, uh-huh. and food. Because the okay. connection... so. Yeah, and food, of course. Um, mm-hmm.
3: You have potentially, you know, depending on who you're talking to, two strikes against you: one, you were young, and two, you're a woman, um, girl. Actually, that would be the young part. Um, you know, you're doing it with like friends and your mom. And did you find that people didn't take you seriously? Um, like, had I mean, how did you get them to take you seriously?
4: I find that you will have doors slammed in your face for any number of reasons, and age and gender are two of those very common ones. I realized very quickly we had to come to the table that much better prepared, that much more articulate, with the talking points, with the facts, with the sound science. Um, But I also recognized that it was a voice that people weren't used to hearing in this space. Uh And therefore... Maybe we only had a millisecond, Uh but they would give us attention for that one moment. And Uh if we could capture them with a raw, truthful perspective, Uh I spoke to people as if I was their child. Uh Oh, I like that. The next generation that is inheriting, the decisions being made today will disproportionately affect me. Right. Us. So
3: you end up sort of millennial green girl. Um, Literally.
4: Yeah. <laughs> and like,
3: you know, you're speaking for your entire, um, you know, cohort and, and all of that. Did that feel like a lot of pressure? Like, yeah, that's right. Give me a megaphone because I am so
4: ready to speak green. The first time somebody asked me to speak about millennials, I said, what's a millennial? Uh-huh. And they said, you. <laughs> and I said, okay. And they said, we want your talk to be called the green generation. And I thought they want me to talk about who I am and what I love. I'm a young person who's a tree hugger. And I said, great. Sure. The first polling data that Uh I officially gathered, I did on Facebook Uh to ask my peers. This was a time before you had copious amounts of surveys and research on millennials. We were an emerging demographic that companies were particularly interested in, that universities wanted to know about, that governments were you know researching and I represented that I remember the first magazine cover that said the face of the new green generation and I that was you yes <laughs> it was me but I, I some degree Sorry. buried my head in my hands but simultaneously was so proud to be able to carry that torch yeah. and it's it's the giants upon whose shoulders I stand that I feel I'm honoring it's the women who have come before. It's the environmentalists so who have come a, before. Do you have people who you really admire and want to give a shout-out to? I would love
3: giving shout-outs to, to those people. Often they're lost to history. Like Not everybody studies them or cares, but you know, are there people who you feel like everyone should learn more about?
4: There's an incredible woman named Vandana Shiva who is one of the fiercest advocates for seeds. Seeds. In we, our world. We love seeds. <laughs> I love seeds. Seeds are great. She is powerful, she is poised, she is brilliant, and she is
3: ruffling feathers. Oh my god, that's amazing. So where does she ruffle them? I mean, like, what... All over the world. Is she,
4: where is she based, and what's her company? She's based in India, does a lot around heirloom seeds. Soil is my jam. I'm very passionate (laughs) about healthy soils as a way to literally not only create a healthy planet going forward, but to reverse the effects of climate change, to take the carbon out of the atmosphere where it's problematic and put it back in the ground where it benefits people and plants in our society. And one of the things that we have to be very conscientious of preserving is our seeds, heirloom seeds. Or not only
3: heirloom, right? Because heirlooms are a really tricky term, at least in... The seed world. Yeah. Um, You can have crappy heirloom seeds. Um, Quality quality seeds. Quality seeds. That's good quality. Quality
4: seeds. But also, particularly for farmers. So she's very concerned with the farmers, the people who grow our food. Right. And that's been a through line in my entire life, from Marin County, that has one of the highest concentration of organic farms of anywhere in the country, to what I'm doing right now in Puerto Rico, purchasing thousands of pounds of local produce a week. I'm so excited to get to that. Okay. Well, have to
3: get through your astonishing yes, youth. Yes. I mean,
4: there's so much. Like,
3: we're just in eighth grade, for God's sake. So, um, okay. So there was eighth grade, and then you committed to it, and I've seen, like, you did a lot of fashion stuff. I mean, you were really sort of the intersection between my um, previous world, which is you know, magazines and lists. We like lists for other reasons too. Like the dirty 30s. Awesome. And, and, um, but telling people what to wear and what to buy and how to, you know, put together a cute home, which is so, uh, when I look at the work that you've continued to do, there's something that is, um, like that's such a interesting place to start, right? Mm -hmm. Because you were a media darling speaking for a group, but doing really lifestyle stuff. And, um, which is a step along the way to changing the world, but it's a very um, soft way. Yeah, it's a low-hanging fruit. A low-hanging fruit. So, but you then um, you went to NYU. Why did you choose to go to NYU?
4: I love New York City. I have <laughs> since I was a very little girl, and I got a scholarship to go to NYU and to be a part of a scholarship program that allowed me also to study abroad. I spent four full semesters on global campuses of NYU.
3: Ah. I was trying to figure out, because I know you've traveled so much, and I know that you took um, five months off to do work, really work in Haiti.
4: I was back and forth. I was in, I was in Haiti for a while. Uh-huh. I actually kind of telecommuted to NYU <laughs> the spring of my freshman year, but then I was six months, five, six months each in Ghana, Israel, Spain, and Argentina studying with NYU, which gave me a purpose. I think one of the greatest things that we can do as people is to have a purpose in a place and to immerse ourselves in the culture and in the day-to-day life so that we're not just observers. Because when you become a part of the fabric of a community, of a city, of a country, you're better able to serve, you're better able to engage, you're better able to respond. So when you were
3: there for NYU, you were doing more than taking classes, I take it, Mm -hmm. because that could actually leave you just within four walls with some air conditioning. And, um, you know, that wouldn't be your goal. So what were you doing, like, in those places that made you part of the community, which is clearly a precursor for some of this um, work you're doing in Puerto Rico?
4: Or did you say
3: Puerto Rico?
4: Puerto Rico. (laughs) In my new, in my new, my new Boricua style. Um, When I got to Ghana, one of the things that caught my eye in Accra, in the capital city in West Africa, was the amount of plastic, trash Hmm. in the streets in the gutters all over particularly water sachets how people drink pure water Hmm. it's like a Ziploc bag Uh but sealed on all four sides you bite off a corner you squeeze out the bag and then you drop the bag exactly right and I thought someone has to be doing something and sure enough there was a man hiring Ghanaians to pick them up washing them in reclaimed water Hmm. drying them harnessing the power of the sun and stitching them together Hmm. into tote bags sport bags Hmm. The works. Back to your fashion life. Precisely. But also a social business that benefited people and the environment and profit and a bottom line. And I said, where's your education component? So I went into public schools and said, hey, guys, do you drink water? Yeah, yeah, we drink water. (laughs) They see a foreigner, probably an aid worker. How do you drink water? And you would see these blank stares because no one had... Ever ask them what they did with these bags after yeah. they were done, and that is the power to be a catalyst, to ask probing questions, to, or the simple ones. But to just share yeah. knowledge and best practices, yeah. And every time without fail, kids would come in from the yard with armfuls. What can I do? Wow. So it's the same question we asked ourselves in Northern California when faced with a public and environmental health crisis. That these young kids were asking themselves in West Africa, and I think that's what gives me hope in humanity: Mm -hmm. is that inherent desire to do good, and the way in which. Young people especially, but all people, can be sponges for new information and new ways of life and new systems. But it's about behavior change, and that's not easy. Yeah.
3: Um, You actually have a bunch of catchphrases. You know, the what can I do is a really important one, uh, because everybody can do something. But one of my favorite ones of yours is, and I I might mangle it, so... um, I am but one, but I am one. Um, And I think it's so beautiful. Uh, Can you just explain what that means to you and and how you put that into practice?
4: I just have to say, I too wish that you could see the smile on my face (laughs) right now because you said it perfectly. Um, There's a Helen Keller quote, which is, I cannot do everything, but just because I cannot do everything does not mean I will not do something. And this is my 21st century version of that. I am but one, but I am one. I am but one is somewhat liberating. You're just one person. You can take a breath. You don't have to do it all. You can take the day off. You can spend time with your family. You can turn off your phone. You can breathe. You can say no. Because there's seven and a half billion other people in this world who are all going to do their part. So just relax and take a breath. But you are one. (laughs) So what if you did do something? What if you dared to speak up? What if you showed up? What if you had that conversation? What if you posted that photo, that quote, that petition? What if you cast that ballot? What if you refused to stand up or to sit down, whatever the case may be? What if you launched that business idea? What if? And what if you affected one life and that spurred another and a movement with a ripple effect that you don't even see? So it's that duality of Humility, but at the same time empowerment.
3: Okay, so that brings us to running for Congress. <laughs> you, I'm like, you can you can cast that ballot. Yes, you can cast the ballot, or you can run for office. So um, you were 25 when, 24, when you ran for office. Um, there was 70 days left between the the time when you is it called register. Yeah, when I filed. When you filed, between filing and um, voting, you got more than 6% of the vote, which is, I think...
4: 21,000
3: votes. Yeah, it's kind of extraordinary considering you had 70 days and no prior experience and no visibility. Um, So why did you
4: decide to run for Congress? Right before I was running for office in late 2015... I was doing a lot of work with refugees. And I was going to the Middle East and to Europe and coming back and going and coming back. And my friend said, Erin, are you just going to keep going? Good for them.
3: (laughs) And I said... I mean, the implication being there's a lot to do here.
4: There's a lot to do there, but also what's the end goal? Why are you doing this? And it made me pause and reflect. And I hope everyone has, has friends in their life who turn a mirror on them. Why are you doing what you're doing? And... I, I should pause
3: on that because I, I feel like um, my close friend does that to me all the time. It makes me grumpy. You know, um, I had breakfast with her today and I was like, ugh, I know you're right. It's so annoying, but it's good to have those people it who is. hold And you maybe accountable. you don't realize
4: it at breakfast this morning, but maybe tonight you'll shoot her a note and right. say thanks. Yeah,
3: exactly. Okay, you're right. Um, but it's super important.
4: And it's those that know us best right. that say, why are you doing? It? You're just going to keep going. And I said, no. If I want to affect lasting paradigm shifts, then we need policy change. And I came back and there were governors slamming their doors in the faces of these people, fleeing the very terror and violence that we are petrified of washing up on our shores. And I saw such a rise in division and in hatred coming from all sides of the equation. And I gave a speech in my hometown about the impact of place. How many times have I mentioned Northern California? Why I am the way that I am. Yeah. And all of us, to a degree that's greater than I believe we even realize or give credit to, are shaped by the physical place in which we grew up. And it's impacted my values, my professional path, my identity. I walked off stage. And two people came up to me and said, how do we get you to run for office? Oh my
3: God!
4: And I looked at them and I laughed in their (laughs) face, and I said, you have the wrong girl. I was 24 years old, never held prior elected office, haven't spent decades in corporate boardrooms or law offices or the halls of government. I don't have tens of thousands, let alone tens of millions of dollars in the bank right here, right Right. now. I could rattle off a million reasons why I didn't think that I was qualified to run. And they looked at me and said, that's exactly why you need to do it now, here in our district for Congress.
3: Okay, let's pause on this idea because this is the second time that you said no and then you said yes. So what is that?
4: I believe in doing things for a reason and not haphazardly accepting or denying. But my knee-jerk reaction there was, you're out of your mind. I don't see myself as a politician. Yeah, But I go, and I assess, and I make lists, and I take note, and I think about why I'm put on this earth, what I am called to do, where I can best serve. There are three questions I ask myself before I make any decision: What am I most passionate about? Okay. Where can I have the greatest impact? Uh huh.
3: That's another one of your um, the big ones, along with, you know, I am but one.
4: Yeah. And what best sets me up for a lifetime of service? Uh huh. Because passions, what. It keeps me going, what lights me up, what ignites me. Impact is true legacy when you step away. And a lifetime of service because this business of world changing is not easy. Yeah, and it's no. not short. yeah. Um, and I called up friends, mentors, the wisest people that I know, and they all said, yes, <laughs> you need to do this. Um, my best friend said words that resonate with me to this day. She said, yes, you could wait, but why not run while you wait, yeah, I love that notion of um, if you don't know,
3: just do something,
4: right? Like, what's what's the worst? An object in motion stays in motion, right? And when you do one thing, you commit to more. So I started writing as I do to process my thoughts, and it became an open letter to the world about why on earth a 24-year-old woman would have the most remote desire to run for office, given the current state of politics in our nation and our globe. And I filed. I gathered the signatures to get on the ballot. And I was gathering the last signatures, and this little girl walked up to me with her father. And she looked at me and she said, "Are you running for Congress? or are you running for big Congress?" <laughs> and, I went on to talk to her and her father. She'd never seen anybody who looked like her, who talked like her, who remotely understood what it's like to be her in office. And that notion to a little girl that I could even be eligible to run blew her mind. But the father thanked me for changing the frame of reference and the possibilities for his daughter. So I wrote this letter. It was a Tuesday morning, about 11 a.m. I had been up all night. I was home alone with my dog in my bed, thinking, am I really going to do this? Am I going to put this out into the world? Because that's something beautiful and terrifying about publishing something, about posting something, about saying something with witnesses. Yeah. That you're then accountable. And I press post on a Medium article, (laughs) sent a tweet, an Instagram, and a Facebook, and... The way in which our message resonated with the world is beyond my wildest dreams.
3: I think, I think it's great to take on things that seem so gigantic.
4: You seem to have no fear. Is that true? Do you have no fear? Fear does not enter into my day-to-day equation of thinking, but all of us have fear, and I think that's healthy. That inner oh, but apparently don't have it. <laughs> but that inner battle, even if we don't express it outwardly, is certainly there. But I think one of our greatest fears often is that of failure. And because I started on my activism journey so young, I didn't call it failure. I called it learning. Yeah. And I failed, and I failed greater, and I failed bigger, and I failed faster. And I learned from it. And if you... Make a mistake and you learn from it. May you make another mistake the very next moment, but may you not make the same mistake twice. So do you ever have any fear of um, burnout?
3: You started so young, right? Everything you do is really gigantic and intense. Um, You don't take on small problems. Uh, Do you feel like you could burn out from doing all this good work? I love what
4: I do. Okay, so the answer is now. <laughs> so much, and I, I truly believe that this is my reason for being. This is my purpose. I am an activist. That's how I self-identify first and foremost. But there, I also learn. Is to there a religious boss. piece of it? Like, is there the purpose
3: in life? Like, not everybody is born feeling they need a purpose, but you were born with a sense of purpose.
4: I. I found my sense of purpose at age 13 with something as simple as a thing of mascara, which sounds so frivolous, which sounds so petty, which sounds so privileged, but it caused me to question everything around me and it caused me to go back into my life, to mine my own life and find those pain points and those injustices and those challenges And convert them into opportunities for a solution. So now, sometimes I wish I could be normal. Sometimes I wish I could (laughs) walk down the street and not feel the need to understand people or to align with people or to support people. But that's who I am. Um, I have an incredible tribe around me. And I know something of balance. People might not see it. But I'm so (laughs) deeply fulfilled by what I do. Um, And for me also, getting to work with food and farmers and health are things that I'm so passionate about and are also so simple. Okay, so with that, we're going to take a very quick
3: break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the work that you're doing in um, Puerto Rico, farmers feeding people resilience, the stories of what you saw on the ground and how that really gives you hope for humanity so stay with us and we will be right back after this commercial
1: break this episode is brought to you by southern farm and garden a beautiful handcrafted agricultural journal each issue features stories about food history seasonal recipes artisanal products and the amazing people who bring it to your table packed with stunning photography the content is fresh and educational southern farm and garden takes you behind the scenes to meet farmers gardeners Wineries, chefs, and artists who are passionate about creating healthy, unique, and sustainable food and products that you can enjoy all year. Are you interested in eating healthier and learning more about where your food comes from and living a more connected life? Purchase a copy today at southernfarmandgarden.com. Foodtank.com named Southern Farm and Garden one of the top 20 magazines for people who eat, cook, and grow praising it for connecting readers with the food, the farms, and the stories behind our food system. Subscribe today or find a retailer near you at southernfarmandgarden.com. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to
3: Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. And my guest today is Aaron Schrode. If you have not heard the first half of this, I suggest you roll back. Erin um, is an extraordinary Um, The passionate person who has a purpose in life, and that is to, I don't know, do good sort of too
4: broad. But what's your purpose? Here's how I define it, to inspire and mobilize people to discover and activate their passion for social impact and policy change.
3: Okay. So you're trying to help others to do it, which when we were talking about what you're doing in Puerto Rico, it actually, that makes sense, right? Because for you to feed an entire island, um, you could make a lot of lists and you could organize some kitchens, but you really needed other people to take on the charge and then um, have a cascading effect and have them really be the ones in charge of feeding others. Let's talk about Puerto so it, it's where we started the show. Um, you landed with no, very little Spanish, um, uh, you know, great organizational skills built from years of you know, working with refugees, working around the globe. Um, but what about this was um, really different from anything else you'd
4: ever experienced? There was an urgency that Jose Andres felt that I felt, that everyone on the ground felt. We could not wait. Mm -hmm. People were hungry. Mm -hmm. And they had no power, no water, and no fuel. It's really hard to cook without those three things. And we needed to feed the masses in a very short duration. Mm -hmm. I had never organized something on that scale Mm -hmm. that quickly. Mm -hmm. And it's all hands on deck but one of the beautiful things was that so many people stepped up yeah that it required municipalities hospitals elderly homes it required homeland security and the coast guard to help us deliver our meals it required the distributors to get us our food the gas companies to donate that it required human beings all around the world to donate volunteers to show up chefs to bring it it was everyone and that's the power of a goal. That's the incredible value in vision, is that people can coalesce behind it. Mm-hmm. But I've never done something on the scale. I will not <laughs> pretend like I had. And in some ways, you're making it up as you go. Yeah. But you have that urgency. Yeah. Um, I, urgency is a,
3: a powerful motivator. Um, I work with the team at Dig In, and the, and the founder, Adam. You know, if you bring up a problem. And he'll say, so, you know, um, how are you going to solve that? Like, we don't have six months. And in my mind, like, I love that idea. Like, we don't have six months. Because if you just have endless amounts of time, um, things don't get done. If it has to be done tomorrow, um, things can get done. So tell me about visiting, um, because you... Brought food to people. You saw, like, the power of food to nourish and transform. I'm just wondering when you, you know, you got to know some of the the people of Puerto Rico. Um, Can you tell us a a story of that resilience of where they, you know, their situation was so dire, and yet they were so. I don't know. I don't want to make it so Pollyanna-ish. But what was the reaction to getting the food, or you guys being there?
4: Food is an incredibly powerful tool. Food is so much more than calories or sustenance. It is a reminder that you're not forgotten. And about three weeks after Maria, Jose and I actually did a helicopter drop of hot food into the mountaintops of the center of the island in Utuaba. And a partner of ours, one of the owners of the food company on the island, loaned us this. It was the first hot food that these people had had in three weeks. And we landed a helicopter in a baseball field. And people came running from all sides, not knowing who we were or what we had. And when they opened up the bandejas and smelled the recipes that they knew, picadillo, arroz con pollo, carne guisada, the joy And the ecstasy and the memories and the nostalgia and the gratitude was unbelievable. They then wanted to show us everything that they had, giving us stuffed animals that had made it through Maria from a child. Um, Jose was bringing fortified yogurts and mothers just blessing him for giving their children the nutrition that they needed. Uh, I went out with the Coast Guard one night to the west of the island. And we had gotten an SOS, as we often did, largely across social media, Mm -hmm. because Jose put a hashtag in front of Mm chefs for Puerto Rico, and we heard about a community that needed food, and I was driving with the Coast Guard, and it was dark, and the road suddenly dropped off. That sounds scary. And this had happened all across the mm-hmm. mountainous regions of Puerto Rico where roads were washed out. Mm-hmm. And it was. I would have been terrified if I weren't with the United <laughs> States Coast Guard. So thank you, Alexander Hamilton, for founding it. <laughs> but we were there to reach a community that was 10-minute walk down the road. And to start what I like to say at the ends of the roads first and work our way back mm-hmm. in, Yes, our primary kitchen has always been in San Juan. Mm -hmm. We set up 26 kitchens across Puerto Rico. When we went to Vieques, we were launching that kitchen there. Jose was serving up the food and singing and dancing as he does. (laughs) And I was carrying these plates to people waiting in a line that wrapped around the block for the only ATM that was opening for the first time that day to get out resources. Um, I walked into a coffee shop near where I lived. A couple weeks after, Maria, and the woman behind the register looked at me and burst into tears. And I said, are you okay? (laughs) And she said, you were the first ones to show up in my town. And she had a little brother who was really hungry. Yeah. And it's those sorts of stories that keep you going. It's still to this day, we have a woman named Lola. I would say Lola single-handedly has probably delivered 75,000 meals. Wow she is a hero wow. she is an angel she is whatever yeah, she, you believe in embodied how did she do that Lola started coming we actually found her on Facebook delivering our food and our no meals way. Have <laughs> just for Puerto Rico sticker and we contacted her and said where are you getting the food and she was getting it from a food truck which were our legs and our arms out in the community and we said you can come directly to us and get as much as you need yeah so she started bringing Friends of hers' cars because she does not have a car. Oh my the goodness. Horse, driving an hour to pick up the food, which yeah. was short compared to what some people were driving four hours at the beginning. Yeah. But Lola stayed the course. Amazing. And she would go door to door because she knew who needed the food. And she said, you know what? That family's okay. But this family, that family's bedridden. And to have those community leaders. Yeah bringing our food to those who really needed it is why we do what we do.
3: And so what, when I think about you know going hungry for that amount of time, and it's not because that's not necessarily because you can't afford it, it's because there is actually no food. Um, you know What do you think it kept those people going? like what, what were they
4: actually eating? Some people had stockpiled yeah. canned goods, dry goods yeah. in their homes. Um, the military was airdropping MREs. Uh-huh. That will keep you alive, and that's about it. Yeah. But some people were there eating that. Uh, you had people digging up what root vegetables still existed. Yeah. There's one family in San Sebastian. They said the whole family would split half a malanga root. That would be their meal. So it was hard for a lot of these communities, particularly months after Maria. You would go to grocery stores around the perimeter of the island, and they would still have nothing fresh. Yeah. They had dry goods. And I also- but why is that?
3: I mean, because it seems like at some point, the roads are passable and boats can come from, you know, and drop off food. Power. It's really
4: power. difficult to run refrigerators sure. around the clock at a market yeah. when there's no power coming from any grid. Gas for a generator of that size is prohibitively costly so people made do with whatever they could buy. But also as we've continued, why we have continued to serve meals in these pockets of need is, listen, if you lost maybe your whole house, maybe you were lucky you only lost one wall or two walls or a roof, but you lost your job, you lost maybe a car, you've invested your savings to get your family through the hardest of times, Saving four, six, eight dollars a day for each person in your family for days or weeks on end. I went to a community a month ago and a mother looked at me and she had half a cinder block wall and she said, That's you. I said, What do you mean? She said, That's the money that I've been able to save because you've been feeding my family. But that's that's the power of food and the power of showing up and the power of staying the course. I'm curious
3: about the staying the course part because you know in, I do a bunch of um, non, I try to do a bunch of nonprofit work and one of the things that they say is actually quite difficult is um, having people stay the course. You know, like it's exciting. You know, it, there, there's a tragedy and people come for the tragedy or the um, the hurricane or whatever, and then they go um, and you're still there and how many month, how many months after
4: maria is it now so we are almost 11 months okay. after hurricane maria when we first started it was the goal was to scale up as quickly as possible mm-hmm. and we scaled up to cooking between 120,000 and 150,000 meals a day every day for 2 weeks because that was what was required on the island. We wish we could have made three million meals, but we were cooking 148,000 meals in a day. That's amazing. I mean, it's extraordinary. Completely extraordinary. I would not believe it if I hadn't lived it, <laughs> yeah. but here we are, and it was yeah. our team yeah. coming together around a vision with that urgency, Jose leading the charge, and everybody executing with everything they had, 21 hours a day. Yeah. God. And then we, continued to assess the landscape. And I think that's what's so important, mm-hmm. especially in nonprofit work or relief work, is meeting a need. We didn't want to flood a market with free food, uh-huh. particularly at a moment when businesses in San Juan were starting to come back online. Jose is a restaurateur yeah. and an entrepreneur, and he wants to empower chefs and cooks and food truck owners to reopen their businesses. So we began to focus even more on our remote kitchens in places where business still is not back or at a fraction of what it is and making sure that they had access to food. So we were cooking about 65,000 meals a day for a month and then another 40,000 meals a day for a month. And we thought that it would continue to tail down. Jose outlined a 21-day Marshall plan. And then we were getting close to 21 days and it was far too soon to close down. So we extended, and we did a big Thanksgiving dinner to thank everyone who stepped up, and we said, it's still too soon. And our Puerto Rican team, I'm very proudly the only gringo on the team, (laughs) they said, it's too soon. And I relayed that back to the World Central Kitchen leadership. And in January, I organized a meeting with 89 farmers, together with chefs and restaurateurs, and said, listen, I don't know exactly what I'm here to tell you. Mm -hmm. I want to listen. I want to understand what agriculture looked like on this island prior Mm -hmm. to the hurricane, what it it looks like now, and what your vision is Mm -hmm. for where it can go. Mm -hmm. And I can buy anything you've got. Because at that point I was still (laughs) cooking with our kitchens 20 plus thousand meals a day. And their harvests were just starting to come after Maria. Their lands had been desecrated, takes a long time to clear it, particularly without heavy machinery till it, get used to the new climate, Mm -hmm. plant it, see what comes, what works, what seeds, what sprouts. So showing up with 96 pounds of carrots, okay. 60 pounds of kale, great. 35 pounds of radishes. And my chefs looked at me like I was crazy sometimes, but they started to cook with whatever they had that was grown locally. So we weren't only purchasing from local food purveyors, which we've Mm -hmm. done from the get-go. We were now purchasing locally grown food to amplify the nutrition and the beauty of our now rainbow-colored stews. So you're there now working with farmers. Um, I think World Central Kitchen is
3: giving farm grants. And do you expect, first of all, I want to know, you went for four days, and um, even that was like, well, I've got some other things on the burner. Um, What was it like to really upend your life? and say, okay, I'm committing to this. I'm not leaving till it's time.
4: When I first went, Jose asked me very quickly, I need 21 days. I said, okay, I have two commitments in that 21 days. I can clear it, this matters more. I was so focused on work that everything else in the world fell by the wayside. I literally had no idea what was going on in global news. Am I proud of that fact? No. But sometimes your work necessitates that sort of laser focus, and I believe that what I've been able to do in Puerto Rico is thanks in large part to me putting on those blinders Mm -hmm. and being absolutely 100% in 24 hours a day. I did not post on Facebook or Instagram for 76 days. (laughs) And I love sharing, and I believe in the power of telling stories and amplifying these messages. And when I finally paused In December, I realized that it had been two plus months of my life doing some of the most important work with the most incredible team to serve those most in need. And it wasn't until that moment that I thought, wow, I I live in Puerto Rico now. (laughs) And my friends kept asking, when are you coming home? And now they've started asking, when can I come visit?
3: That's an amazing switch. So you're there for the, for the long haul, although I imagine your life has always involved travel.
4: Yeah, starting in um, the spring, I started to go and come from Puerto Rico. I'll tell you, Puerto Rico is open for business, yeah. and there are incredible restaurants and hotels and agro-tourism and natural beauty, and it's one stop from anywhere in the U.S. So the ease of that location to get where I need to get makes living there very simple. But I also believe that we're only as good as how much better we respond in the next disaster. And unfortunately, that's not an if, it's a when. And we are in hurricane season right now. And we know that climate patterns are getting more intense and more frequent. And another storm will hit Puerto Rico, um, whether it's this year or hopefully decades to come. So, the systems that we've put in place to activate kitchens and chefs and distribution networks are something that I've been working on very closely. Um, We had a scare with a tropical storm a month plus ago, and we were ready. And Mm -hmm. everybody felt like they had that purpose. Mm -hmm. So, it goes back to that rallying cry Mm -hmm. asking people to do something. And them saying yes, because it's a low barrier to entry. Can we have you show up at this place, por si acaso, just in case? (laughs) Um, So we are also doing these farm grants. We're committed to Puerto Rico for the next at least couple of years, because agriculture, again, is not an immediate process. And investing in infrastructure and development and capacity is going to take a while. But... As an organization that's rooted in chefs, we're also very passionate about the connection between farmers mm-hmm. and the food scene in Puerto mm-hmm. Rico, which is one of the best in the world. It's awesome. And you got to try our chefs just, at Dine and Dash. I did.
3: I, I would have liked to have dined and stayed right there, eat more food from Puerto Rico. And um, I mean, I love Jose Enrique. He's, he's the only one whose food I, I knew, but just getting a little taste was... Phenomenal. Have you learned to cook
4: Cook at all? Yes. Or you like to cook? I love to cook. So, um, But do you have a favorite dish? Oh my gosh. I love so many things. Pasteles in Puerto Rico are amazing. And they can be stuffed with anything you want. And as someone who's very passionate about fresh seasonal vegetables, to see the creativity of chefs, of what goes in there, and to pack the masa, the, the meal around it, and it just melts in your mouth. <laughs> oh, I love make, making you making you hungry and plantains um, and plantains. and guineos, which are their bananas escabeche, fried, boiled, mashed. There's so many things you can do with a plantain.
3: Okay, so we're we're coming to the um the end of our time together. I wonder, um, you ran for Congress once. Um, would you run again?
4: Yes, I never did something where I felt more relevant where I felt people coalesce with such an urgency. And I believe that, yes, you can change the world through disruptive startup models. You can leverage technology to take media to new heights. You can delve into the depths of science and research and education. You can use nonprofits to literally save lives and change the world. But you can't count politics out of that equation. You can't count policy out of that equation. You can't exclude the power and importance of legislation and the government structures upon which our country is built. And that doesn't just mean federal, that means state and that means local. The importance of city councils and supervisors and PTAs and mayors, it all matters. And we started literally around my kitchen table, but in my hometown, working to change the paradigm for young people in one little place on this globe. But the skills that I learned there around organizing, around educating, inspiring, and mobilizing people towards solutions is something I believe passionately about in my hometown, in Puerto Rico, and all around the world. That's such an
3: elegant way to, um, to bring this to, um, to a close. So I want to thank you, Erin, for spending your time with me today because you're not so often in New York. And um, thank you for dropping into speaking broadly. If people want to follow your great work or make a donation to World Central Kitchen, um, where do they find you and
4: how could they donate? So I'm Erin Schrode, E-R-I-N-S-C-H-R-O-D-E. I'm the only one in the world, so I'm on Instagram, <laughs> Facebook, Twitter like that. And World Central Kitchen is as well, at WC Kitchen on most social networks. And you can go to worldcentralkitchen.org donate. And follow the journey unfold, hashtag Chefs for Puerto Rico, at Chef José Andres is my brother, my dear friend, our our wild, wonderful leader. Um, We stay the course. We stay the course. And this is
3: FW Scout. That's how you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. And thank you all for listening and looking forward to having you back and for another great episode next week. Have a great week.